Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 469, air date October 3rd, 2019. Hi, how are you, Dr. Shiva? I'm doing great. How are you? Um, I'm doing really, really good. I was so amazed and interested um, about that video that you posted, and I contacted you. We got in touch with each other right away, or you contacted me. I don't even remember, but um, we... We, need, we are in dire need of truth in this world, and, and you were shedding and dropping some serious truths about simple economics of this whole climate change thing and these carbon taxes and uh, all of this. And I just, I want you to maybe, to, first of all, I just want to thank you, first of all, because it was such a fresh and refreshing perspective to just see a logical, mapped out whiteboard, you know, uh, explanation of these things that we're not being told. And so just for people who might not have seen that video, which by the way is really blowing up right now, can you just paraphrase really simply the gist of that? Yeah, thanks, Tiffany. Um, By the way, to everyone listening, Tiffany, uh, I I met on Twitter, right, Tiffany? Because you um, had retweeted that and I looked up Tiffany's work where she actually exposes a Hollywood industrial complex. So, so we thought it'd be interesting to connect, but I, I think there's many, many um, th- things that uh, we're doing that I think actually can expose uh, truth. But I, I, to answer your question, Tiffany, one of the things that's happened is that when you look at that video, I think the reason people are enjoying it, first of all, it's the distillation of a lot of complex systems that are uh, interacting together. Um, you know, the system of the... Uh, academia, the system of scientists, a system of governments, a system of um, uh, pollution, all those things interacting together. And I like to do these things, you know, with a simple marker and stick figures. You know, I used to teach a class at MIT, uh, was called systems visualization, was one of the most um, popular electives because I used to bring together the notion of systems theory, you know, very, you know, how complex systems work, transportation systems, healthcare systems. I use narrative storytelling, mix it in, with um, you know, design and, and some type of artwork. So that's sort of the elemental piece of that. But uh, so I just wanna let you know that that presentation, I think people like because people say, wow, I could understand this, right? And I could maybe draw it and teach other people. And part of the reason in doing that is many of these very complex systems, um, they're shrouded in some type of uh, you know, com- so, so much complexity you're not supposed to know, and the news media only gives little pieces of it. So when I did that drawing, it was really to look at the Paris Accords uh, and to really expose it in a different way, because the typical notion of the Paris Accords was, uh, well, this is great for the environment, and why isn't the United States signing on up to it? And there was this deep, um, you know, sort of visceral attack at, uh, at Donald Trump. So if you look at that diagram, it basically says before and after, you know, as I go from the left side to the right side, the left side of the diagram basically says, you know, if you're a business today and you're making products, you know, let's say you're putting out X amount of CO2, um, that people buy those products and they pay a price for that. The after the Paris Accords, the same situation is taking place, but the difference is that the CO2 that's being put out by businesses is going to be taxed, a carbon tax, because in this model, those businesses are going to have to buy a certain amount of carbon credits to offset their CO2, right? But fundamentally, nothing will really change but what, uh, for the amount of CO2 that's going up. But what will fundamentally change is that the consumer is going to be taxed more, the average American worker. And between that process from the before and after, what I explained was that the quote-unquote IPC, I put double quotes around the IPCC because the IPCC is presented as a scientific um, you know, consortium, but behind the IPCC is a whole bunch of people like the Al Gores of the world who push this on people to basically sell. It was basically a big sales uh, pitch and a sales model to get all of these countries. Many of those countries did not want to sign up to the Paris Accords. But to get them to sign up to the Paris Accords, um, the United States was going to fund, quote unquote, the Green Fund, which was essentially payoff money. 
to the consultants of these organizations. And it was basically to get them to support the IPCC's, uh, quote unquote, IPCC's efforts. But after 2030, these carbon credits are going to be enormously valuable on the stock market. They're going to go up in price because the entire Paris Accords encourages China and particular India to double their pollution, right? You can go from 11 billion carbon tons in the case of China to 22 billion car uh, met carbon metric tons. Um, so, that's, so the exposition really showed that the Paris Accords have nothing to do with lowering pollution. They encourage pollution um, and they encourage after 2030, uh, all the guys who are investing in carbon uh, equity credits, you know, it's going to go skyrocketing in price and a bunch of people are going to be trillionaires. That's absolutely stunning information. I don't know if you just sort of take for... <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Well, you know what? We're all really busy people, so I'm just so glad that yeah. <laughs> you have time to do this. And I know your schedule's crazy and mine too, so that happens. No, I was going to say that the fact that you um, just sort of laid all this out, because here's the thing. These scams and these ruses, this is nothing new. But, you know, they use these ways of manipulating us. They use things that we care about. We all care about the earth. But what we don't need are these systems and these deceptions to be increasing the divide on this planet between the middle class, the, you know, the working class people and the elite people. And that's exactly what this whole scam is doing. And you revealed that in pretty much a bombshell two minute video. So it's, it's amazing. And now just coming from the background that you have growing up in India, you have a really unique um, perspective on these things. And you said to me about the caste system. And can you explain it for people? Because this is, you know, we're not taught everything here in America. We're taught very select things. And this is a good revelation. It's really an amazing revelation for Americans to understand. But if you can explain a little bit about your growing up and the caste system that we spoke about. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, when I grew up in India, I was, uh, I was born in India in 1963 and I came here in 1970. But one of the uh, very, I guess, uh, dramatic things that affected me. I remember it was as a young kid, you know, I, I didn't know anything about this playing with, uh, I, I think I was playing soccer or football as they call it in India. And I went to this kid's home um, to get a, a glass of water. And I was asked to stand outside, not allowed to come in by his mother and called a term that's called Shudra. It's like the N word in the United States. And given a glass of water in a very different kind of cup, it was, it was a form of segregation. And I remember going to my mom and, and I said, what was this? I think I must have been like four years old. And my mom said, oh, uh, when she was a child and she used to go to the well, they would say, shu, shu, shudra, which means get away, almost treat her like an animal. Um, the Indian caste system was based on this old model of the, king, the, the priesthood, literally priests, Brahmanical priests were on top of that uh, pyramid. The next was the kings. Um, and then the kings, the next step below that was what were called the warriors. And then below that was the business folks. And then you have the shudras, everyone else who were working people who essentially uh, did all the work. Um, this model, you know, originally was a guild system, right? Where it's based on your skills. But it devolved into this very hierarchical draconian model, uh, Tiffany. Uh, the interesting thing is in the 8th century in India, that caste system model was was the beginnings of its um, breakup was taking place because some of the very interesting spiritual leaders of the time, a guy called Sankaracharya asked an interesting question, you know, if there's equality in heaven, why isn't there equality on earth? And that led to a period of around seven centuries, eight centuries, where the Indian caste system was actually breaking down. So when the British came, uh, artisans, merchants who were considered very, very low caste were actually rising in their stature and their acceptance. And what the British did interesting in 1757 following the Battle of Plassey, and a lot of Indians don't even know this, um, was the Indian caste system was reinstituted uh, re re in India because the British were very smart. Instead of imposing, you know, um, uh, you know, ninth century or pre-eighth century, uh, or uh, instead of imposing British law, they decided to impose pre-eighth century Indian caste law because it was a way of introducing a, a law, a set of laws that the Indians were used to. 
So a lot of Indians don't know this. What essentially ended up happening in India, was you had the reinstitution of the caste system, a very uh, uh, draconian type model. And so when the, when the British eventually decide to leave India, we, we end up going from white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. So that's why for 70 years, India never really had any fundamental changes in my opinion. The so-called Indian independence of 1947 was not really Indian independence, it was a transfer of power. And I think today or yesterday was a big celebration of Gandhi, but Gandhi was really brought in um, to really be part of the not so obvious establishment, which we'll talk about later, to really transition. So the British were planning on leaving anyway in India. There were lots of revolutionaries who actually wanted to have a good revolution like America had in 1776 and wanted to kick out the British. Instead, Gandhi was in many ways parachuted in. He was a miserable failure, by the way, in South Africa. He didn't really help any of the South Africans there. They represented him as some revolutionary fighter, but he was actually brought in to ameliorate these contradictions. So India suffered for 70 years. Um, and I think the, the recent election of Prime Minister Modi, who sort of considered the Trump of India, uh, really changed things drastically because for, for that 70 years, the Gandhi family, not related to Mahatma Gandhi, but it's just a last name, ruled India. The, the, the prime, first prime minister of India was Nehru, his daughter was Indira Gandhi, then her son, and they were trying to get their recent son elected, and, and Modi busted that up. My point is that the caste system um, still has a significant effect in India, but the fabric of it was really to control people. And the quote-unquote, what we would call the academics of the time, the priesthood, was on top of that system. And, I, and I, I know that our talk is entitled The Academic Industrial Complex. And in India, in an un, I mean, in the United States, in an unfortunate way, we've gone sort of back to the future in some ways. And we have that same academic Brahmanical hierarchy, which really runs this country. And they're sort of the fake news behind the fake news. They're the fake science. And we can talk more why I call it fake science. I don't mean it to be in a dramatic way, but science is essentially degenerated in this country to academia and they practice now the oldest profession in the world. And that profession is essentially pay to play science. And yet um, we are trained to revere them, right? You see, you see, I mean, just the, I mean, you, you do a lot of stuff with Hollywood, just the, the way people are presented, right? With their glasses, their goatees, they have to look like a nerd, they have the MIT, Harvard, you know what I mean? That whole surrounding, and they're the modern priesthood of the, of, of the you know, current world. So I would say we've, unfortunately gone back to a, a neo-caste system in this country. At least in India, people are aware of it. In this country, we're not fully aware of that. So many stunning things in what you just said. One of them, one of them is that it was 1947 that this mm -hmm. fake independence, correct, took place. Um, and in 1947 in this country, we had the founding of the CIA. We had um, the the government set up shop in Hollywood with the founding of the Office of Film Liaison. Oh, interesting. Now the hmm. Department of Defense officially opened an office in Hollywood called the Office of Film Liaisons. So many things happened in 1947. So I find that particularly interesting. But also what you're saying about how this complex creates a caste system in America. And it's so interesting how these elite universities are being exposed right now. And it's the whole thing is sort of falling apart, that mystique and that prestige. You know, first you have the exposure of these elites paying for their kids to get in, right? Just this past year, we're yep. looking at all this. Now, Harvard, MIT, very, very, very much mixed up in the Epstein dragnet. And so this caste system is being exposed this caste system that americans very much aren't aware of is starting to be we're starting to become aware of it right would you say yeah i mean i i mean when you look at um hollywood and academia they have a very close connection in some ways epstein weinstein these guys are the bridges between that um at mit Raphael reif who's a president should resign here's a guy who rose through the ranks at mit uh, when he was appointed president, I sort of I had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, really uh, concerned me for many, many reasons. But Reif, Raphael Reif, um, even after he knew 
that Epstein was convicted, uh, supported and signed off on taking more money from him. Now, they got rid of this guy, Joey Ito. In some way, he's a fall guy, the, the head of the media lab. But Raphael Reif should actually resign. And I've asked MIT alumni to ask for his resignation because, because what it really shows is that at the highest levels of the academic administration, what's happened in this country is that a college president, their number one uh, goal, Tiffany, is to raise money for what's called the endowment. In fact, their legacy, how much they increase the endowment from the previous president is what determines their stature. That's how they leave their legacy. So the goal to raise the endowment is like the driving force. In the case of Rife, you know, his job is to raise as much money as he can. So he brings Epstein in, and Epstein, in many ways, uh, it, uh, was his pimp, okay? And I hate to use that word, but again, I say academia, and this is not just my point of view. Uh, others have brought this up. A, a professor called Richard Lindzen, you saw the video I did on the Paris Accords. Um, about a, a year ago, uh, I met Dick Lindzen. Dick was an eminent professor at MIT, uh, a leading guy in the meteorology department. He wrote a letter to Trump to tell Trump to get out of the Paris Accords. And about 100 professors at MIT denounced him and wrote a letter against him to Trump. And I said, Dick, what's this about? He goes, look, you know, don't you know academia has become the oldest profession in the world? It's all about money. Because MIT probably gets around 20 to $40 million in uh, quote-unquote climate change impact grants. In fact, there's $2 billion in grants out there. So you could be a very mediocre academic, which most of academia is today because we'll talk about this prior uh, after the 70s, the Mansfield Amendment really changed the nature of academia. So it really supported more salespeople than real scientists. It's about people uh, getting grants in the door. So the quality of academia significantly went down. And what you ended up having was people in academia were just chasing grants, chasing grants and chasing grants. And that entire process has created an environment that even if one uh, uh, real scientist, we're talking about real science, has the information to say this whole climate change, none, by the way, none of the models even map, um, none of them even, it's indeterminate science says something, he is viciously attacked. And they've moved science, Tiffany, to the model of scientific consensus away from the scientific method. We remember there was a guy, right, called Galileo, 99 out of 100 people said that the sun went around the earth and there was scientific consensus and he had clear data that the earth went around the sun. So what's beautiful about science is it doesn't matter what you believe or your opinions, right? Because everyone on social media these days has opinions. Right. It's really based on facts. Mm -hmm. And so scientific consensus has no room in the area of the scientific method. Um, so that's where science has devolved into. Um, and uh, if you want because what's that? Because now people can be bought. Because people can be bought. Facts can't be bought. And that's when exactly over to this prostitution method. So it would be, yeah. I would like to raise the question just publicly right now, why hasn't the, why hasn't there been a call for the president, as you said, right, the president of MIT, who did sign off on this uh, taking money from a convicted child sex trafficker, a third degree child sex offender, who literally can't go within legally cannot go within a certain distance from a school. Why did the president sign off on taking money from such a person? That's a really important question and one that should be raised loudly and publicly. And because as you said, I believe that, that there was that fall guy. And this is in time and time again, this is, what, this is what we see in order to protect the system that's in place, correct? Yeah, I mean, Henry Kissinger's, you know, who, who I don't care for much either. Henry Kissinger said, if you want to learn how to, to uh, be a politician, he goes, join academia. Mm -hmm. When the stories, so look, Epstein was representing Bill Gates. Uh, Epstein was representing a lot of people to bring in money. So he was essentially MIT sales guy. Mm -hmm. And he brought in a lot of money into the media lab. And Joey Ito, who was the head of the media lab, was also on the board of the New York Times. Okay. Um, and Epstein, pretty much, uh, you have to understand many of the academ academics, and we can have a whole conversation about people in Hollywood also, one of the behavioral patterns that 
goes across both sets of these people is a high level of insecurity. Yeah. Um, and, and that level of insecurity comes because many of them got into those positions, not really because of talent. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1970, there was an amendment, uh, late 60s, early uh, 70s, an amendment called the Mansfield Amendment. Up until that point, Tiffany, the, uh, the military had a massive budget, right? And they would take a little piece of that budget, they would fund basic sciences research. So in an ironic way, that little piece of that big military budget, ratio-wise, was very small, it was fractional, mm -hmm. but it was big. It was a pretty big piece, and, and, but they didn't really care. So really very cool research got funded. You know, people were allowed to do some very uh, great research. After the Mansfield Amendment, what it said was because of the Vietnam War that no, that the military could not fund basic sciences research unless it was for military weaponry. So that little piece of the budget went over to the National Science Foundation, which is a highly political organization. So what ended up happening was that the scientists had to become academics, which means salespeople to go after that money in the National Science Foundation. And that's when you really start seeing the uh, rapid decay of the quality of people that were allowed into academia. So how do you, you know, as you know, one of the big goals, like I guess in the Vatican, the goal is to become a cardinal or a, I guess the Pope or something, right? In academia, because you get a job for life. In academia, the goal is to get tenure. Well, how do you get tenure? Well, let's say you come in as a PhD, you just got your PhD and you start on tenure track. You have seven years to get tenure. Well, how do you get tenure? Not only do you have to publish papers, you have to bring in grants, big thing. The other thing you have to do is you have to make sure the work that you do is cited by other people, which means other people say, oh, uh, let's say you're trying to do work in pancreatic cancer, Tiffany, and there's already a 60, 70 year old guy who's like the leader in that research. So if you come up with some new theories of pancreatic cancer, you better make sure that he cites your work, which means he says, oh, Tiffany's doing amazing work. You following me? So there's if, no breakout. There's no, it, it just levels. It's everything you're saying explains because people don't understand why is our, why is our college and university system in the state that it's in right now? How is this even possible? Yep. You're, you're, bringing up, you're bringing up a great point. So what, what happens is in this model, the academic is doing whatever he can to people please his peers. They call it peer review to get them to acknowledge his work. It's essentially a bunch of ass kissing that takes place. In a, I hate to say it in a very crude way. And um, let's say you're, yeah, what's that? It sounds too like innovation is almost way, way down there. It's discouraged almost because you don't. It's, 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 you, you nailed it. Because if you apply, for example, for a National Institute of Health grant, NIH grant, most of us, you know, when we apply for those grants, the first part of that grant, if you're applying for something, like you say, I want to do, I have this theory about this. You know what they ask you? It's called the specific game one. Give us some results that already show that you've accomplished some of this, okay? So if you're doing clearly something innovative, you don't even have those results yet, you're never going to be able to do something innovative. So the entire model is rigged for the incumbents, right? Like in politics, like, like in Hollywood. Exactly. So it's, it's rigged for the incumbents. So they perpetuate their views. That's why we haven't had any major breakthroughs in science. Let's be honest. There hasn't been any significant breakthroughs because this is really for the people who kiss up. So you have the academic who's a professor of some student that, that is coming in a new student. That academic is kissing up to everyone else. The young student who comes in who has potentially going to have $200,000 in loans, they need to get A grades. They're simply going to kiss up to their professor, right? to get those grades. So you essentially have a, the, the students are kissing up to get A's because they need to get A's to get a good job to pay back their $200,000 in loans. And the professors themselves are kissing up to an entire system. It's about getting grants. And you have seven years to get tenure. So it's about getting grants and it's about getting your peers to bow to also acknowledge your research. So the, really, the real scientists get weeded out. The radicals, the people have, uh, who are outspoken, the purpose of academia was where you go and you get to be radical, you get to have free speech. So now we basically have a bunch of lemmings in academia. By and large, I'm not saying they're not some good people, but that's a rarity right now. 
So that's what has developed. So that's why when a guy like Dick Lindzen or a guy like me starts exposing the climate change stuff, you have all these people saying, oh, uh, they don't know science. Well, the reality with climate change is that all the models are indeterminate. There is no science to them. And Chuck Schumer has a bill right now in Congress, I think it's Bill 791, which says that there will be no more discourse on climate change because there's scientific consensus, which means no government agency can even sponsor conferences on climate change. So first of all, Chuck Schumer knows nothing about science. And what he's trying to do is to suppress freedom and scientific discourse. It is very similar to the Council of Trent, right? The edicts of the Council of Trent, which were done 20 years before, uh, which is basically saying, uh, you cannot say anything against the, the basis of the Bible, right? And that was used to, uh, you know, vilify and persecute Galileo. So this is what we're going to. So, and by the way, we know journalists, uh, very few of them left. They simply cut and paste what an expert at Harvard, MIT, Yale says. So you have fake news, which is backed up by fake science. So, fake, so, 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 so modern academia is really the feeder. They're, they're sort of the fake news behind fake news. Well, and also you've got fake Hollywood stars who are the same exact thing, this same yeah. exact system. You've got fake politicians. Washington is the same exact you know, system that you just described. And they're out selling it all. The star, you know, you've got Leo DiCaprio. You've got these people who were created in the same exact way as you're talking about the academics in this closed power system of don't step out of line. The people who play the game the best are going to be the ones who get elevated. You know, you know what you have to do. It's the same thing. It's why we have what we have. And it's why it's all breaking because human consciousness, as you and I have talked about, it's rising on this planet. It can't be stopped. And so people are on to this whole thing, which is amazing. So let's, let, let's, let's just move on for a second to how we fight this. You and I have talked a little bit too about how we fight this and something you call the not so obvious establishment, which is such a cool and amazing concept. Let's talk about that. Yes. So one of the things is, you know, uh, in addition to being a scientist and inventor, I've always been interested in politics um, and political change and how you actually make change. Because when I was a kid, I saw that experience occurred to me with the caste system. Not only did I get interested in science, by the way, I think you and I've spoken, my grandmother was this healer in a small village without any degree. She practiced traditional systems of Indian medicine. So I, I got really interested in science and medicine by watching her in an interesting way. But I also got interested in politics. And when I came to the United States, uh, I was a, a seven-year-old kid, uh, you know, was very motivated in science and invention and et cetera, created the first email system. When I came to MIT, which by the way, I didn't know about until a few days before I even applied, uh, um, uh, I got very interested in politics. One of my early mentors was Noam Chomsky. And Noam Chomsky, if you know, had written a book called Manufacturing Consent. Um, yeah. So I was very interested in understanding the caste system. And I spent about a year with Noam. And I really went back. And a lot of the stuff I shared came out of that analysis. But I also started a student newspaper at MIT called The Student, which was really uh, an activist newspaper. And why did I do that? Uh, that was about 1984. And one of the big lessons I learned was a young idealist uh, some of you may know in 1984, there was an interesting election, 1983 to 1984. Ronald Reagan was running, another guy called Walter Mondale, the Democrat candidate. Reagan was a Republican. And there was a third, um, what seemed like an anti-establishment candidate. And, and his name was Jesse Jackson. And Jesse Jackson was running this thing called the Rainbow Coalition, which was saying, you know, the parties don't serve us, dot, 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 right? So a lot of young people, like people who were attracted to Bernie, were attracted to... Um, to um, Jesse Jackson. Mm -hmm. But at the last minute on the floor of the Democratic Convention, I'll never forget this, Jesse Jackson, you know, who's building a movement, said, you know, you know, Reagan is so horrible, we can't allow him to win. You've heard this, right? The lesser of two evils nonsense. And therefore, we must support Walter Mondale. So he gives all of his votes to Mondale. So that's when I realized that this guy was a complete sellout. And I started, as you start researching this, what you find is, and this is something really important to understand. There are three trends um, in major political movements. The establishment, those people want to keep things the way they are. They're very overt, you know, et cetera. Revolutionaries, people actually want to fundamentally change systemic issues. And within these two trends comes a third very insidious group. And I would argue they're worse than the establishment, 
what I call the not-so-obvious establishment. They will speak the rhetoric, right, of trying to say we want it. Yeah, we want freedom. We want this. But their intention is to funnel all that anger and that energy back into the establishment. So when I talked about Gandhi, um, and the Indians listening should understand this, because in my view, Gandhi was not such a great hero. He actually sold out the Indian people. You had the British, the British crown, who was clearly the establishment. You had a lot of revolutionaries in the 20s who wanted to have a good revolution. And Gandhi was parachuted in. You know, he spoke some philosophy. It all sounds good, you know. But at the end of the day, he sold out the Indian people. And what he did was drive it to the Indian National Congress, which was a safety valve set up by the British so people could like, you know, talk and whatever, have parliamentary lectures. But there was no fundamental change. If you look in the United States more recently in the 2016 election, what happened? You had, you could argue the Republicans, you had Hillary Clinton running, and then you had this guy Bernie Sanders running around. I remember when Bernie ran, people, people said, oh, Shiva, you should support Bernie. He's really radical. He's anti-establishment. I said, look, mark my words, Bernie Sanders is going to do exactly what J Jesse Jackson did on the floor of the D Democratic Convention. He's going to bow down to Hillary Clinton. They say, no way, Bernie would never do that. Hillary's clearly, you know, horrible. But that's exactly what he did. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, this happens on the right, too. In Boston, for example, we have some radio talk show hosts and so-called Tea Party people talk a good game, but they funnel essentially backroom deals back into the Republican establishment. And what Trump did, look, I, I, I never voted in my life because no. I never cared for electoral politics after that Jesse Jackson incident. Mm -hmm. But when Trump ran, I saw a guy throwing enough bombs, enough uh, you know, uh, boulders to smash uh, Republican, I, I don't even, forget, I, don't, I can't read his mind, right? Mm -hmm. But I saw him at least sincerely going after both parties. I registered as an independent and voted, registered then as a Republican, decided to run for U.S. Senate. And Massachusetts, if you want to talk about a uniparty, Massachusetts in many ways is the center of the deep state. If you took a map of a serp, if you took a serpent and you drew a map of it, the head of that serpent would be Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts GOP establishment, I'm not talking about Republicans or Democrats or independents, I'm talking about the Massachusetts GOP establishment are, in fact, the blue bloods who never went back to London or UK after they lost the election, right? They just embedded themselves in institutions. And, and that, the Massachusetts GOP, by the way, Charlie Baker, who's a governor, Republican governor, and William Well, the governor, both of those people are the most vehement attackers on Trump. More than, in fact, I would argue the Democrats here. Why? Because he basically exposes the collusion of both of these parties at a very fundamental level. So when I announced I was going to run, um, Tiffany, as a Republican this time, last year I ran as an independent. Uh, I ran initially as a Republican, but they didn't want to, uh, I knew they were going to put me on the ballot. We ran as an independent against Elizabeth Warren, the fake Indian. Uh, and who, she's totally part of the establishment. You know, she just talks a good game, but she's completely part of the establishment. Right. And Rob Schneider, uh, Rob should be listening because Rob thinks she's, uh, she's something good. And Rob, you should understand, she kept me off the debate stage. The, the Republicans and Democrats are so afraid. We got on the debate stage legally, everything, and they came against me because they knew if I got on the debate stage, I'd expose both of them. They're both fakes, the fake Republican and the fake Indian. Um, we got 100,000 votes, though, Tiffany, last year because of ground uh, working class volunteers, five times more than any independent candidate in the history of Massachusetts. And that last independent guy was allowed on the debate stage. So this year we're running as a Republican. And it's, to me, it's Chevy or you know, uh, Ford, both of these parties. I decided to run on you know, the Chevy this time, but it's really the person that matters. And the key things we're hitting is truth, freedom, and health. You know, and the vaccine issue, or the climate change issue, the genetic engineering issue, but the vaccine issue is an extraordinarily amazing issue because my PhD is in biological engineering. I spent at least a third of my PhD uh, on the immune system. And what I see is, forget the vax, uh, no, uh, anti-vax argument. By the way, both parties always like to break us up, right? Uh, into these very simple dialectics. But the real issue with the vaccine issues, there are no safety, there's no risk assessment standards. And in fact, of the 30 vaccines that they force upon children, um, 29 of them have had no double-blind placebo control studies. And the Gardasil vaccine, and women listening should be concerned, it was a bogus double-blind saline control study. It was, it, it's, it's basically fraud. 
So what we fundamentally have uh, is science it really has not taken place. And what I am saying is let's actually do science. Let's bring back the scientific method. And that is going to be an interesting challenge because academia doesn't really like real science. They look where the money is. Academia has been bought. You, every, every swath of this I'm going to have to break down because it's like you keep saying so many important things. And one of these bombshells, well, first of all, let's just say you're running for Senate in 2020 in Massachusetts. And I think you know people should know that. People should know who you are and be interested because in our founding and the founding fathers, it was supposed to be people like yourself, scientists, different people that we were not supposed to have career politicians. And what you've said, and you've told me is you're going to just run one, you know, do you, one term. Yeah. Should you get elected, yeah. you will serve one term. Yeah. So if you think about it, just simple mathematics, mm -hmm. um, this is what happens. Um, 90, 9% or maybe there's a few good guys there. I think, I think there are some good people there. But most of these guys are running to get elected and reelected. So, so if you look at the schedule, in fact, there's a couple of them online. If you look at the people should call up their politician, ask them for their daily schedule. Mm -hmm. At least 80% of that time. So if you get, remember, two years as a congressperson or six years as a senator, 80% is spent doing what? Trying to get reelected. Donations. Networking, networking, so you can build your own influence, right? So if you ever happen to not get elected, you end up becoming, becoming a lobbyist. So they're spending at least 80%. So if you take a U.S. Senate seat, six years, what's 80% of that? 4.8 years, which means only 1.2 years are you spending on legislation. And more importantly, that legislation you're spending on is probably being influenced by the lobbyists. So God knows how much you're really spending on for the people that elected you. So now imagine. Dr. Shiva Ayadure as an ex-US senator saying, I'm gonna only serve one term. First of all, I can't be bought because I've taken that off the plate. Right. And the other thing is I'm gonna work six years, which is five times more, five times 1.2, six years. So they're getting five senators in one term. The price of and one. the founders of this, yeah. And <laughs> founders, of, I mean, you know, uh, George Washington couldn't wait until he could go back to his farm. Uh, all of these founders had skills. They were, you know, they could do electrical work. They, they, they had skills, engineering, architecture, surveying. These guys have no skills at all. So to, to them getting, and so what people listening should understand is, why are you even voting for these people? You deserve better than that. You deserve people like me. You deserve people like founders of this country. You deserve everyday people who actually know how to do things. And furthermore, you should be ready to truly sacrifice so it's not about going there to try to um, stay in there for life. Going there should be a sacrifice. And it doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're rich or poor. You are making an active decision to say, I'm foregoing this and I am making a sacrifice because of the great things this country did for me. That is not the modus operandi right now. I'm going in there uh, and, uh, to get elected and reelected. And most of these guys are Muppets. Mm -hmm. um, they're not really skilled. So the notion is in Massachusetts, for example, the Republican governor, Charlie Baker, and the Republican former governor, Bill Weld, who's running against Trump. When I said I was running as a Republican, the only Republican running here, you know who they endorsed, Tiffany? They've endorsed drooling Joe Kennedy. And what does this guy have to his anything? The only thing he has is his only experiences um, in his name only. Mm -hmm. So isn't it incredible that you have to have a Kennedy in America still today to get the endorsement? of the Republican Party, and he's a Democrat. So and that says we're back to an aristocracy in this country. And this guy has done nothing. I saw him go to a homeless shelter, simply take pictures, and walk out, and I asked him, hey, Joe, can you tell me why the homelessness rate in Massachusetts in the last year alone is the highest in the United States, 15%? He, we have this on video, he goes, I don't know anything about that. So this is ridiculous. Look, John Kennedy did great things, but you know what, that was John Kennedy. The Kennedys do not own America. Just because you see the Kennedy name, you, you shouldn't vote for them because what you're really saying is you support lineage, you support monarchy. And well, that's what we got rid of in 1776. I, I, there is a lot been, been being said lately about all of us starting to understand we have this aristocracy. We have a bloodline rule. And lineage, yep. It. And it's, 
we've been absolutely convinced and we've been absolutely deceived into thinking, oh, no, 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 you have a republic, you have democracy. No, we're living in an aristocracy with bloodline rule. It is. Yeah. And, and, and you know it from the stuff you've done. It, you know, uh, uh, a very good friend of mine, you know, um, said, you know, there are four families who run Hollywood, maybe five. The same thing in, in Washington. You know, at one point it was the Romneys, the Obamas, the Clintons, and the Bushes. And they all work together. You know, on the front, they act like they're enemies. They're not. They're very good friends. They all hang out at Martha's Vineyards. They're quite incestuous, and they do all sorts of stuff together. Um, Trump came and blew that up because he was not considered part of that clique even in New York. So uh, I don't even care, Trump, if he passes any bills. The fact that he's created all this disruption and and uh, and has inspired someone like me to run on a personal note, I'm quite happy. And every day he hits back at the establishment, that's a good thing. So, uh, and that's me, sort of the, the, the fighter in me who really opposed the caste system and what I saw it do to people. Because ultimately, you know, we talked about this. What we're really talking about is something very fundamental. The caste system, whether it was in India or the neo caste system here, is really about what does it mean to be a human being? Because, you know, when I, when the story came out, you know, six years ago that I invented the first email system, you know, I did it in Newark, New Jersey, long before I came to MIT, it was done in Newark by a 14 year old kid who was trying to help women go from the typewriter to the keyboard. Email is not text messaging. The military didn't create it. Yes, I, I invented email. But when that story came out, and I never wanted fame or fortune, but when it came out, in 2012, it wasn't about the fact I invented email. It was a fact I didn't do it at MIT or Silicon Valley. And that blows up this whole narrative that you have to be anointed, you know, and you have to look like a nerd or you have to be a Harvard dropout, right? Zuckerberg Gates, right? You surely can't be a hardworking kid in Newark, New Jersey and invent email. No, that kind of stuff is only preserved for, um, you know, guys like Zuckerberg or Gates who drop out. And by the way, Gates didn't invent DOS. He stole it from someone else. And his aristocratic mom and dad are the ones who got him sold, you know, got it sold and built Microsoft. But the point is the invention of email, like many other inventions, took place outside of the bounds of the aristocracy. And when you're not willing to be a good Indian and not willing to accept that, people try to uh, suppress you. And I think one of the things that's important here is a guy like me knows the inside of all these guys. And I know how to fight them because most academics are extremely spineless people, highly insecure people, very spineless. They follow the lemmings. And when they get exposed and you expose one of them, the other guy actually just runs because they actually don't even have any loyalty among themselves. It's so much like Hollywood. It's so much, <laughs> you know, it's so similar. And you talk a lot about, there, there's just so much in this interview I love. We're going to have to talk so many more times because this is, there's, there's so much coming out of this. We could talk about what you just mentioned and Hollywood's role in selling all that with, with movies made in conjunction with the CIA, like the social network to continue this psyop of this academic industrial complex. It's that, that only these important things that have been done can only be done in this way by these people. You're really just, yeah, and, 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 if, and if people step out of line, either they become invisible news or don't get covered. Uh, you know, I've been, uh, I, you know, I can share this story. You know, there's a movie called Poisoning Paradise uh, that I was, you know, uh, asked to help out. I'm, I'm the main scientist in the movie. It's really about the destruction of what agrobiotech has done to the island of Kauai. It's a documentary done by Keely Brosnan, who is the wife of Pierce Brosnan. And Pierce actually put his own money on it and produced it. It's a great movie because it really talks about movements coming up from below and how as every time they won, how people from the top, actually they legitimately won laws, legislation, et cetera. But the interesting thing Keeley was telling me was, you know, if Pierce, you know, uh, does anything, you know, Hollywood Reporter or TMZ covers it, right? If he's driving his bike down, but they would not cover Poisoning Paradise, right? That's what's interesting. I mean, he's 007, right? Former 007. So he's got a lot of brand equity. But when he did this movie, which really exposes agrobiotech, the collusion. In fact, there's a part of the movie, Keely, there's Pink Floyd's music playing, and it really literally scrolls through, you know, money. Every politician and how they've gotten paid, Democrats, Sanders, 
uh, Republican left and Bernie Sanders, to all your Bernie Sanders folks, you know, you took about $28,000 from agrobiotech. Mm -hmm. So, but the interesting thing is, Pierce Brosnan, who has a big name, big star, right? That movie has not gotten any critique, any coverage by the mainstream rags in Hollywood. And that's something important to remember. So they make it invisible news. It's not, it's not even fake news. When I ran, they were afraid to even do fake news on me because they know we would get more publicity. So the, mo so the version 2.0 of fake news is invisible news. They don't exist. People, people like me will, don't exist on mainstream media, which is great because we don't want them. Well, true, and it tells, it tells so much, just what you just said explains. For people to understand these systems, it's like, it's like Bob Iger going uh, on Oprah yesterday, the day before, and talking about the firing of Roseanne and how it was easy to do. It tells you so much. You're actually being told so much by watching the way that this system functions. It's revealing itself to us. It wasn't about, it's never about what the people want. It's never about giving the people what they want or, or, or what they need or what's best for them in terms of this movie that you were associated with. It's about giving them what you want them to have to, in order yeah. to control them to your ends. And we need to become completely wise to this whole system and how it works in order to build something new. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things is when you look, you know, we started this discussion on that, the uh, Paris Accords video I did, no production, right? It was just an iPhone pointing at a board and right. we just drew it out, okay? That's gone viral, right? How much money did we spend on that? I would say zero, okay? Um, but what's important to understand that in that is everyday people actually want good content and they're, and, and they're given just garbage. The Edward Bernays model of advertising is take everything and reduce it to a sound bite. So when you start a campaign, oh, what's your sound bite? What's your sound bite, right? And these are like people who don't know jack about doing anything in, in their lives and anything significant. But the fact that people go to movies tells you that they actually like long form stories. But the stories that they're getting in many ways are polluted stories. But the good hope is people actually want long form. They actually want intellectual discussion. They actually want depth. And what the establishment tries to do is to convince people, oh, people just want simple forms. That's not true. Since the beginning of time, we used to sit around fires. When I grew up in India, my grandmother would tell me these long stories of warriors and fighting, and you, know, and you would get enthralled in these stories. So to say, oh, what's your soundbite? This is part of the establishment's model to dumb down people and to tell us that people are actually stupid. And I refuse to believe that because when you look at that Paris Accords video, it goes on and people get excited. They understand. People like listening to podcasts, as you know, two, three hours. They actually want depth. And that's the opportunity here because everyday people are actually quite smart. The people who are dumb are the educated idiots, the vulnerable educated elites because they're sucking up all day. But the average worker, the average person who works with their hands has to deal with nature's laws. They already know intuitively. They don't need to go to MIT or Harvard. They already know intuitively. They just need some backup information to support what they already know. This has been so stunning. This is like, and I feel like we're just scratching the surface of so many different topics that we could be talking about. Uh, you know, what's so, what's so dangerous about you particularly and it's particularly about you running is that this vaccine issue particularly that you mentioned it really crosses party lines you've got a lot of mothers around this country being activated too you know as women we are programmed and wired to identify threats to our young that's just part of our wiring yeah. and we're starting to see the shaping of culture via hollywood a lot of moms i have a, a you know an enormous female following because it's, it's these moms who are identifying these threats to our young and they're being activated. And it's the same thing with this vaccine issue. So I really think that you are going to cross party lines because of the things you're talking about, because nobody's controlling you. And you're just talking about the things that actually grassroots people really are concerned about and really care about. So I think that's so interesting. Yeah, um, Andres, can you just plug this in? This, this juice just went out one second. Um, so one of the most important things um, is, that's fine. One of the most important things, uh, 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 Tiffany, is this. The, the, when, you know, I started talking about 
moving beyond vax and anti-vax. And one of the important things that came out out of that is, and I was speaking to a group of mothers, by the way, there's a site called, uh, someone just put up there called shivabelievesmothers.com, shivabelievesmothers.com. But one of the things that came out was I said, look, I'm running as a Republican. Um, this is just a platform, right? Whether you're riding a Chevy or a Ford. But the most important thing that I wanted to share with people here was that it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, like you just said, because these are things that they've used to divide, divide us, Republican, Democrat, independent, black nationalism, white nationalism. These are all just divisions. And they like it when they like to show us Proud Boys or Antifa fighting, fighting against each other. They love this stuff. What they don't want is people focusing on real solutions and real problems and unifying people because ultimately we're all human beings. We actually have uh, a lot of things in common, you know, besides the genome that we share, many other things. And the opportunity uh, with what I want to do is to really focus on what's the real problem. Like with climate change, it's not CO2 is not a pollutant, right? It's we need to lower actual pollution like sulfur dioxide and these kind of things. When it comes to vaccines, it's not pro or anti-vax. The reality is there's no risk assessment models, period. When you go to every one of the gun violence, you know, there's been um, hundreds of millions of dollars funded in sepsis, right? 40,000 people die of sepsis in the United States every year. Well, 40,000 people die of gun violence, but they've spent very little on research. And the one multifactorial research paper showed there's five things that cause gun violence. And if you remove any one of them, you can stop it. It just so happens one of them has, happens to be access to guns. But that's what they all focus on. They don't talk about bullying. They don't talk about uh, the fact that uh, kids are being distracted. They don't have families, et cetera. So what we want to do is really focus on real problems and real solutions. And that's a way to unite people and whether you're a Democrat or Republican or Independent, it doesn't matter. You know, our campaign is really about bringing people together. And Massachusetts is supposed to be the mecca of medicine, the, the Athens of the world, right? And if we or by winning here, I think we'll set off a shockwave. That's what our campaign's really about. Well, I, you know, I'm here to just wish you the best. I, I really, Thank you. really enjoy you. I like, love your story. I love talking to you. And I just love the science that you're bringing out and th these these truths about the fact that we don't actually have the scientific method we have consensus people don't know this information and this it brings context to our crazy world we we don't understand why our universities are the way they are and you just broke it down for us and really explained it so i hope that we can talk again really soon and i've i've really really enjoyed this same here Stip tiffany is wonderful i really enjoyed having this conversation let's do more of them and uh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.